Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Esther, if you would. And uh, my text today will be Esther chapter number 8, and I'm going to start with verse number 3 in just a moment. <clears throat> and I am, uh, Lord willing, going to finish up this message this morning. For those of you who do uh, feel like my messages have been a little long, all I can say is, aren't you glad that I didn't put all three points of this one message in one day? Okay, so I broke it up into three different parts. Hopefully we'll finish this up today. We've talked about the challenge delivered to Esther, a impossible challenge, if you will, that Mordecai gave to her that, hey, she was in that place that God had for her at that time uh, to be used of God. Yesterday we talked about the courage displayed by Esther. Though there was fear, she displayed courage. And courage is, by the way, not the absence of fear. It's moving forward despite the fear that is present and uh, if you ever think that, uh, well, these guys, they've been in ministry for X number of years, surely there's no more fear involved after that. No, no, no. Fear is something we have constantly in our lives, all of us, that we have to fight and say, you know what? I'm going to move forward for the Lord despite the fear that is present. And that's what uh, Esther did. And I'm so thankful for her testimony and her example. Now, I want to today talk about the compassion demonstrated by Esther as she did what God uh, laid on her heart to do and, and had for her to do, she did so with compassion. She didn't do it because it was just, well, this is my duty, this is what I have to do. No, this was a heartfelt response to the will of God in her life. So I want to just kind of pick up for just a few moments uh, where we left off yesterday and bring us into chapter number 8. So if you just look back there at chapter 5, yesterday we ended with verse number 2. Uh, then said the king unto her, that is unto Esther, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. So basically the king saying, hey, the sky is the limit. What is it that you're asking for? What is it that you want? And Esther's response in verse 4, And Esther answered, If it seemed good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. I just want to point out that Esther is one intelligent lady because the way to a man's heart is through his, you've got it. So she's got this figured out. But can I also point this out? We talked about the when-then principle. Um, did you see there in verse number four, the end of the verse, come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared, past tense, for him. You realize she had the banquet prepared before she even went in to ask the king to come to the banquet. Why? Because she trusted God. She had bathed this in prayer. She knew that God was going to answer her prayer. So she had this banquet prepared. Now, just to make a synopsis of the, these next couple of chapters, you'll remember that, of course, uh, the king and Haman come to this banquet that's been prepared and Haman gets really proud because, well, nobody else except the king was invited and, boy, I must be really something. And you remember the pride that he had. He leaves very proud but also full of indignation because after he leaves, Mordecai will again not bow to him, though he is supposed to. So he goes home, he mopes and he complains. He talks to his wife, he talks to his friends at the house and they all say, well, listen, you know, Haman, you're a big man. You're, you're important. So what you really ought to do is build a gallows and you can take care of this problem once and for all. Have Mordecai hung on those gallows, speak to the king. The king surely will allow this. So Haman and his family, they go to sleep. The king tries to go to sleep, but you remember by the providence of God, the king can't sleep. 
So as a result, he has the books of Chronicles brought to him and they begin to read them to him. And as they're reading, it's discovered that Mordecai, as you remember we had talked about a couple days ago, he had saved the king's life, revealing a conspiracy that was against him. And the king says, well, what was ever done for Mordecai to reward him for saving my life? And they realize nothing has ever been done and it's getting towards the morning. And this is interesting. If This is my favorite part of the book of Esther. Just if you don't think God has a humor, sense of humor. I mean, this is amazing how he is, Haman is standing in the out, outer courts. He's waiting to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai. The king says, hey, how can we reward Mordecai? And as they're discussing and they say, well, Haman's out in the outer court. Can we just have him come in and maybe he could give us some ideas? So Haman is looking to have Mordecai hung. And the king says to Haman, Haman, what would you do to someone you would want to honor? As, as king, I want to honor someone. What would you do? Well, the Bible says Haman, he thinks within himself, well, who else would there to be honored to be honored except me? Of course, the king must be speaking about me. And I find it very interesting, by the way. Haman comes up with a plan just like that, as if he's already been thinking about this. And he says, King, I've got the plan. This is what you need to do. Bring out the royal apparel, put it on this person, which, of course, is me. And, you know, put him on your horse. Have just a very significant person from, you know, your palace to lead them around town and to declare, hey, this is what's done to the person that the king wants to honor. <laughs> Can you imagine as Haman is standing there just waiting for the king to give the order to someone, hey, go put the royal apparel on Haman. You know, he, he deserves it, you know, et cetera. Can, can you imagine as the king says to Haman, Haman, that is a great idea. I love it. And what I want you to do, Haman, is I want you to go get the royal apparel. Can you imagine what went through his mind when he said, and put it on Mordecai? <laughs> you think he just uh, dropped his jaw? Do you think he turned red? You know, I don't know. But he says, now listen, Haman, everything that you've just described, he said, I want you to do it, every bit of it, to Mordecai. Put him on that horse. Take you, take him around town and declare to all the people, this is what the king does to those that he wants to honor. Oh, what a day. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall just to watch that happen. How God put all of that together, how he really kind of turns all the events here in the, in the book of Esther. Well, as he goes, carries it out, the Bible says he goes home. He's got uh, his head covered. He is ashamed. And he goes home and his wife and the, pe and the people in his household say, you know what, this is, this is not a good sign. This is not a good thing. And uh, as, as they are talking about all of this, they come to get uh, Haman to, uh, to come to the second feast that Esther's prepared. And you remember it is at that second feast that the king says again to Esther, Esther, what is it that you desire? And Esther just says, basically, I desire my life because I and my people they're all going to be destroyed. And the king seems to be very surprised and says, well, who is it that's going to destroy you and your people? And she says, this wicked Haman. Oh, what an amazing thing it would have been to see that, see God bring that all to that point. Of course, the king leaves and he's got to think all this through. And, you know, Haman's pleading for his wife, the king, for his life. The king comes back in and the king <laughs> says, no, this is not ever going to work. Somebody says, by the way, king, did you know that he built a gallows? Oh, really? Who did he, he build it for? He built it for Mordecai. 
the one who saved your life. And he says, hang him on those gallows. God is in control, folks, from beginning to end. And that brings us to chapter number 8. I'm going to back up to verse number 1 and read down through verse number 6. Just follow along as I read. On that day did King Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite, and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this chapel service. Thank you again for the example of Esther. Lord, as we just stop and bow, I do so because I am at this time admitting how much I need your help. Lord, I'm asking for your strength. I'm asking for your power. And again, Lord, I'm asking for the filling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, some of the things that I'm about ready to preach are things that even this morning you have convicted me of again. And Lord, I pray that I would be right as a preacher as I preach this message today. Lord, would you please use me in spite of myself? Lord, please, please be honored and glorified now through this time. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse number three, Esther makes that plea for the Jews. Notice it says, and Esther spake yet again before the king. So much so, the Bible says, she fell down at his feet, besought him with tears to put away the things that Haman had put into motion. Can I remind you that the first time to come before the king was a matter of life and death because nobody was to come to the king unannounced except, of course, to only to those who the king would raise the golden scepter. They would have that exception. They would not be put to death. So again, Esther's putting herself really in a life and death situation because she's already asked once, but now to go back yet again, and to ask again that the king intervene. Well, again, God answers prayer in verse number 4. The king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. So Esther rose and stood before the king. Again, do you, do you, do you picture this in your mind? Can you imagine as I think the second time now Esther goes to the king and perhaps puts her hand on that golden scepter. But I believe that for sure within her heart she's again saying, Thank you, God. Thank you, Jehovah, for answering our prayer, for giving me again this opportunity to plea for my people. 
And we see her compassion there in verse number 5 and verse number 6. First of all, she seeks the king's favor. I like how she does this. She says, hey, if, this, if it please the king, Lord, king, if I have found favor in your sight, if this thing seem right before the king, if it's, if it's pleasing in your eyes, king, would you please reverse this thing that Haman has put into motion? And then in verse 6, these words, I tell you, they, they sink deep into my heart as I read them. She says, for how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So from these verses, there's five things I want you to see today. Here it is, number one. Just as Esther appeared before the king for the life of her people, so also you and I need to pray for the souls of those who are lost. And I, and I don't mean just, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, Lord, please save those that are lost. But I believe we need to be praying, praying, number one, continuously. Notice that Esther comes back again, and she's, she's persistent. She continues to go as she needs the answer to her prayer, to her desire to see her people saved. She spake yet again to the king. You and I need to speak yet again to the king of kings concerning those that are lost in this world, but particularly those in our world, those that we know, our friends, our family, relatives, our co-workers, those that are around us. We need to pray, God, would you please save their soul? And it's all right to pray this, Lord, use me to lead them to you. I think about the importune friend in Luke chapter number 11. He has those guests that come and he has nothing to feed them. And he knocks on the neighbor's door and says, hey, would you lend me three loaves? I've got nothing and I need to take care of my guests. And he says, listen, we're, we're in bed. The children are here with me. I, I can't answer the door. I can't help you at this time. But you remember the importune friend, he keeps knocking, keeps knocking, keeps knocking. Finally, he gets an answer because that importune that he was because of his importunity, because he kept going. His neighbor finally said, here's some bread. Go. You know, aren't you glad that God says to you and I keep coming, but it's not because he's bothered by us coming. It's because he wants to fellowship with us in prayer. And by the way, sometimes God doesn't answer prayer right away because there's some work he needs to do in our lives before he can answer the prayer in the way he wants to answer that prayer. But this morning, I just want to encourage you. Perhaps there is that person or maybe several people that you are praying about. You're saying, God, would you please save their soul? And perhaps maybe you become a little bit discouraged and ready to give up and to quit. Let me say, don't quit. Continue to pray. Pray earnestly. Pray consistently that they would be saved. Why? We talked about this yesterday. God is a God who delights to hear and answer our prayer. Pray. Pray consistently. And when you pray for missionaries, as we talked about yesterday, pray that they would see souls saved on a regular basis. But not only praying continuously, number two, pray with tears. The Bible says here about Esther that she besought him with tears. I feel conviction about this when I read Esther's response. I think about Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I asked this question. I asked myself this question this morning. When's the last time you have wept over a lost soul? 
or wept over the lost souls that are in this world? Is it truly a burden on your heart that really every day you live with that burden, realizing that you're passing people on the street, you're working with people, you're in contact with people, you're related to people who know not Jesus Christ, and if they die in that state, they will spend an eternity apart from God in a place called hell. That burdens me. And we need to have tears, at least in our heart, if not in our eyes, for those that are lost. And one of the things that I get from Esther here, and I think it's a great application for you and I. You see, Esther's not making this plea. She's not doing this because it's her duty. She's not doing it because, well, Mordecai twisted my arm and, you know, I have to go before the king. No, this has become her burden. This is something that's coming from within her. She desires to see her people saved from the destruction that's coming their way. So, number one, just as Esther appeared before the king for the life of her people, so you and I need to go to the king of kings and be praying for those souls that are facing destruction without Jesus. Number two, notice that Esther sought the king's favor as she made her request. Verse 5, if it pleased the king, if I found favor in his sight, if the things seem right before the king, if it be pleasing in his eyes, you and I need to be right with the king of kings as we go to him in prayer. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You know, this is a missions conference, but it'd be nothing wrong with this becoming a missions revival. Is there something between your soul and the Savior? Something that you're holding on to, some particular sin, something that you know it's not right, but you continue on, or maybe something that you should be doing and that you're not doing. I, that's between you and the Lord. But whatever that is, He knows what it is, and so do you. Boy, this would be a great opportunity to say, you know, Lord, that's going to go. I'm going to clean that out. You know, your annual theme this, this year of Psalm 24 and verse number 4, clean hands, pure heart. We need to make sure that we keep clean hands and that we keep a pure heart between us and God so that when we do go to Him in prayer, He indeed can hear and answer our prayer. Esther made sure she was right with the king. Hey, you and I need to make sure we're right with the king of kings. Here's a third lesson that I see here. Esther had compassion for her people. So also you and I need to have compassion for a lost and dying world. Now again, let me, let me qualify what I'm saying here. You know, verse 6, she said this over two different ways. Really, how can I endure to see this evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? She was willing to take action. And that's what compassion is. Compassion goes, goes beyond pity. Pity will look at a situation and say, well, that's bad. I wish that were not the case. But compassion says, you know what? There's something I can do about this, and I'm going to step up to the plate, and I'm going to do what God would have me to do and put my love into action. And, you know, if we go through this whole missions conference and, well, you, you kind of get a burden and you think about the 8 billion people that are in the world today and how many of them have never heard a clear gospel presentation, how many of them have never even heard the name of Jesus. And, boy, we, we think about all that that's going on in the world and we say, boy, that's, that's a shame, that's terrible. You know, I grew up hearing the gospel and we leave and that's as far as we go. We've not gone far enough. 
We need to understand the need that's out there, but then we need to say, God, help me to have compassion, to put my love into action, to do what I can do to save others from destruction. You know, I think about the perfect example of this is Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, the Bible says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Not with pity, but with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Jesus put his love into action as we see him here in this earth. But we see that he left heaven to come to this earth, putting love into action for you and I. You know, I also thought about the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read these verses to you. They're verses that you've heard before, but i got to tell you, every time I read these verses, I, I just am amazed. I'm amazed at what Paul says here. In Romans chapter number 9, verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul says this, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. And I think he had to say that for people like me that would say, how can this be? He says, this is the truth, I lie not. He says, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. He says that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. And then he says this, For I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul says, I'd rather be accursed rather than them if I could do it for them. I I don't know if you're there or not, but I, I don't think I'm quite there yet. But I'd like to be. I'd like to have that kind of a burden, that kind of a concern, that kind of a compassion for a lost and a dying world. And if there's anybody who put his love into action, Paul was a man of action. He was a missionary of action. He says, hey, because of this burden, I'm going to do everything I can for the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't going to rust out for the Lord. He was going to burn out. He gave everything to the Lord every moment of his life. Let me remind you the story of the Good Samaritan, a story that probably you've heard from little on up. But you remember the man who was beaten, left for dead, The priest came along first. Kind of picture this. You know, the priest has traveled along the road. He sees the man here laying, bloody pool. and just must have been a horrible sight. But the priest, as he walks by, he looks, he sees that it's a bad situation. But, you know, I'm not sure what the priest said in his mind, but probably something to the effect of, you know what, I've got an appointment. I would stop and check, but, but but I must continue on. He had pity on the man. But you remember, after that, the Levite came by. And I'm not sure what the Levite did, but he, he saw, kind of indicates maybe he looked a little bit longer and saw the situation. He assessed it and said, boy, this, this is really bad. I, I do feel bad for this man, but I really don't think there's hope. And, you know, probably he thought something effective. I've got some Levitical duties that I need to tend to. And boy, if I get my hands dirty, I'll not be able to do that. And he showed pity. But you remember the rest of the story. It was the Good Samaritan who came along and The Bible says there, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He put his love into action. You remember, he got down off of his beast. He wrapped him up. He did what he could for him medically. He put him on his own beast. He took him to an end, and then he even gave of his finances and said, if you need more, I'll be back. He put his love into action. He showed us what compassion really means you know think about this when Jesus Christ says for you and I to lift our eyes and look on the fields he doesn't want us to do that just with pity 
He wants us to do that with compassion. Aren't you glad that when God looked upon you and when God looked upon me, that he didn't do it just with pity? Wow. If God would have said, well, there's David Snyder. He's, he's in bad shape. He, he's, he, boy, he, without any help, he's on his way to hell for all eternity. I'm glad God didn't stop there with just pity. But God put his love into action and he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth. Why? So that David Snyder could call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. I'm so glad today that you and I can talk about the compassion of our God, the compassion of Jesus Christ, so that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. We're to follow that example. I remind you what the book of Jude says, and if some have compassion, making a difference. I don't know about you, I want to make a difference in this crazy world in which we're living. Esther, she made a difference in her world. Why? Because she had compassion. Compassion. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see from this. Esther knew that Haman's plan meant evil and destruction for the, for the Jews. I want to remind you of something very serious this morning, very sobering. Satan's plan means destruction. It means evil for those who die without Jesus Christ. You say, what are you, what are you referring to, Brother Snyder? I'm referring to a literal, real, and awful place called hell. I, I remember as a boy growing up, I used to hear hell preached on quite often. It scared me half to death. I think that was a good thing. I'm afraid that hell is not something we hear preached very often compared to years ago. But you know what? My Lord Jesus Christ preached about hell, so I think I need to do the same thing. Let me just remind you this morning, I, I, honestly, with finite words, I cannot describe how awful hell is. But can you just think about it with me this morning? Revelation 21.8 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There really is fire and brimstone. Are you a fire and brimstone preacher? I am, because that's what the Bible preaches. That's what the Bible teaches. It is real it is literal. Don't try and explain it away in some secondary spiritual application. The Bible says that hell is a place of literal fire that is not quenched. Mark chapter 9 and verse 46 says, Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. I don't know if you've ever been burnt before, but that's nothing compared to the fire of hell. The Bible says it's a place of outer darkness. Matthew 8, verse number 12, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. And I don't know, but I, I just feel that this is a, a darkness that you can almost even feel. I don't know if you've been in something like that before or not. I've been in some caves where you've gone way down underneath the earth and they've shut the lights off. I, I've never experienced a darkness like that before where you could put your hand just inches in front of your face and not even know that it's there. The darkness of hell is beyond my comprehension. 
So imagine the fire, the brimstone, but the darkness at the same time. The Bible says in Matthew 13, verse 42, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Think about the souls that are there who are enduring that literal fire and brimstone. The darkness and the separation from God. What else would you hear except grinding of teeth and wailing because of what they're in the midst of? Because they know they've rejected God's only son. I can't imagine it. I can't describe it to its fullest. And of all the things that I would describe and bring to your remembrance about what the Bible teaches concerning hell, I, perhaps the, first, the, the worst one of all is the one that I remind you of from Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are <clears throat> and shall be tormented Day and night, forever and ever. All of these things that I've described is not something that a lost soul will experience for a second or two or three and then it's all over. It's forever. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. But do you realize that somebody who died a thousand years ago without Jesus Christ is in hell right now? Do you realize that same person a thousand years from now will still be there? <coughs> Young people, can you just let that thought sink into your hearts and your minds this morning? If we do, and I'm putting myself here, <laughs> if we do, I believe indeed we will make a difference in this world. I believe we will react not just with pity, but with compassion. Hell is real and it is awful. And it should be one of our motivators to get the gospel into the entire world. But here's our fifth thing that I want to give you today. If you will, kind of another motivator on the other side of the coin in chapter 8 here in the book of Esther, we read verses 1 and 2. And it talks about how Mordecai was advanced in the kingdom after Haman's death. You know, as you read through the first part of the book of Esther, you wonder, hey, who's, who's going to win this thing? <laughs> Seemed like those that were evil were the ones that had the, the win each time. And they were the ones who were gaining the victory. But God had things under control the whole time. Why? Because God had already won the victory before the story even started. That's an amazing thing to me. Do you realize that you and I, as we go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature, do you realize that the victory has already been won? We are not fighting for victory, hoping for the best. We are fighting from victory because Jesus Christ has risen victoriously from the grave. And the gospel message we have to preach is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And I think about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't it great? The next verse he says, Therefore, because we have the victory, he says, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because the victory has already been won. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. How many times have we heard this referenced or quoted this week? Can I just add maybe a little bit of the context to it? Matthew 28 is the recently risen Jesus Christ. He's died. He was buried. He is now risen from the dead. And now he is speaking with his disciples. He has just defeated death and hell. And he says to them, verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. It's been won. It's done. It is finished. And if that passage stopped there, it would be remarkable in and of itself. But that's not where it stops. It's really where it starts. He says, verse 19, he says, Go ye therefore. What's the therefore in reference to? The victory that's already been won by Jesus Christ. So when he says to you and I, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you go, not in your power, but in the power that I have gotten, that I have, all power has been given unto me. And now Jesus says, it's yours. Take it, use it to accomplish the great commission that I've given to you. Oh, dear friend, when we go out and we obey the great commission, we're already on the winning side. Coming back to where we started. Boy, this world is a crazy world that we're living in. And if we wanted to, we can find every excuse to say, well, I I just don't see how any of this can ever be accomplished. How can we get the gospel to the whole world? Look at the political situation. Look at all the turmoil. Look at all these things that are going on. I remind you today, God is at work. God is on his throne. God is working in your life. He has brought you to where you are today so that he can use you, so that you can go in not your own power, but in the power of the risen Jesus Christ to proclaim the wonderful gospel message to a lost and a dying world. The challenge has been given to each and every one of us. The command to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature. Will we, like Esther, respond with courage and say, yes, I'm going to step up to the plate. I'm going to do what God would have me to do. And would we do it not just with pity, but with compassion for a lost and a dying world?